1: to our show today. I'm Nate Johnson, the graduate assistant for the Gortney Institute. Today on our show, we have Dr. Russ McCullough, the founder of the Gortney Institute and Wayne Angel Chair of Economics. We also have Dr. Justin Clark, the Menard Family Professor of Philosophy and Ethics. And finally, Peter Jacobson, the Gortney Professor of Economic Education and Research.
2: Hey, everybody. Welcome to our show today. We're going to be starting on a three-part series here uh, that we'll get into today. Today, we're going to talk about the uh, Stanford Prison Experiments. But first, before we get into that, uh, Russ has a, a little special announcement to make about this podcast.
0: Yeah, I was trying to think of the the song that goes with anniversaries, but uh, Happy Birthday was coming to mind, and then the the graduation song, but anyway, <laughs> uh, listeners, this is show number 100, so we're kind of excited about that, and I will spare you any song or humming from me at this point, but I can't promise that'll last the whole time. So, yes, show number 100, we started a long time ago. Every week we're cranking it out. There might have been one week during COVID or something that there might have been a missed week, but uh, show number 100 is a nice milestone for us, and we uh, hope you enjoy listening, and we continue to bring our off-the-cuff commentary to a variety of topics involving faith and economics uh, as we move forward, and uh, today we'll take a little philosophical Twist two things and Justin, what do you got to say about
3: today's topic? So, as Peter said, we are going to be embarking on a three episode series, another one of our trinity of episodes. So, (laughs) the last one, the last multi-parter, I think we did, was the free will, free will series. And so this one, we're going to be talking about the Stanford Prison Experiment, and then the Milgram experiments, and then kind of what the upshot we can take from both of these experiments are, and how, how that might shed some light can, on... Can
0: you give a little bit broader brush of what, what these experiments were without giving away the punchline i guess is it no humans is it, involving, <laughs> is it involving dogs or humans or human interaction i just don't know even know where where this is coming. From. why don't we just jump in and start talking about what the stanford prison
3: experiment right, was let's do it. so um the stanford experiment was uh, stanford prison experiment was run by philip zimbardo um, in 1971 so he was a stanford psychologist and what he
0: did... Oh, trees. <laughs> so, <laughs> Stanford trees. <laughs> trees. It's the Stanford Cardinal. Okay, well... The mascot is their a tree. mascot's the tree, which I thought was the weirdest thing when I went to NCAA tournament. All right, Incidentally, Stanford uh, the
3: uh, The Stanford Cardinal, the word cardinal, doesn't even refer to the bird cardinal. It actually refers to the color cardinal. To the color. Okay. All right. And, uh, you know, go Berkeley,
0: Stanford... Uh, <laughs> All right, so 1971, Russ it's McCullough 1971. is born. I might add. Fantastic. Unless we're talking about yeah.
3: birthdays. Uh, so uh, Philip Zimbardo runs this experiment, and what he does, he puts out an ad asking for uh, young men, and they're all they're all he's he screens these uh, men so that they're all normal, well-functioning members of society. And then once he gets all his volunteers, and he pays them, I think, $20 a day, which I read a, something yesterday that said if you adjust it for inflation, it's like $100 a day. So a pretty good uh, stipend to participate, participate in this experiment. It's supposed to run for two weeks. And then Zimbardo goes down, gives, assigns each person a number, flips a coin for each number to decide whether or not they are going to play the role of guards or prisoners in this experiment that he has uh, set up. And so in the basement of the psychology department in Stanford, uh, he constructs this kind of makeshift prison. Hmm. Are they going home or are they staying there for two weeks? They're going to stay there for two weeks. Okay, two weeks. They're they're there. Okay. So one thing Zimbardo doesn't tell them is that he's not going to have them report to the prison. If you flip and you get... If on your flip you get prisoner, he sends the uh, Palo Alto police to go pick you up at your home and arrest you for armed uh, robbery. <laughs> um, so this is, you know, you're being arrested in front of your family and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's just to kind of make it a little bit real to mm-hmm. the prisoners. And then he, he also has them deloused. Um, oh. <laughs> um, um. I I don't think they were really even Doing that in 1971 to normal, to normal <laughs> prisoners, but uh, which is an, another tactic to just kind of strip them of their dignity, their dignity, yeah. right? And and that is kind of the goal of the Stanford Prison Experiment, right? So then, that's what they do to the prisoners, and they give each prisoner a number, and to the guards or the people who were assigned the role of guards, uh, Zimbardo issues, you know, wooden batons tacky fatigues and uh, mirrored sunglasses.
0: <laughs> um,
3: and, you know, he tells the the guards, well, this is your prison and you're in charge of the prisoners. So, you know, whatever you say goes and, you know, make sure the prisoners are um, obeying, you know, your rules and the rules are yours uh, to give, right? And so on the first day, nothing much happens. But on the second day, things start to get a little bit you start to see some tension between the groups. And there's, I think the prisoners start, the prisoners at one point barricade uh, one of their doors with mattresses. And, you know, they ask, the guards ask Zimbardo, you know, what do we do? The prisoners are aren't obeying us. And he goes, well, you're in charge, make them obey you, right? And so somewhere along, uh, in the second day, they uh, the guards start uh, to try to, enforce compliance. And they do this by, you know, taking fire extinguishers to the prisoners Um, and things escalate from there. Um, They start locking the prisoners in a closet uh, for solitary confinement. They make the prisoners write letters home saying how happy they are and how uh, well treated (laughs) they're, how they're being so well treated and, you know, making the prisoners kind of verbally disparage each other And the behavior gets pretty sadistic. And uh, so much so that on the sixth day, when Zimbardo tells his girlfriend about it, who was a graduate student in psychology because it was the 70s, and that's what academics did in the 70s, (laughs) uh, he actually later married the woman. When she found out what was going on, she said, this is horrific and you need to stop it. Because some of the people who were assigned the role of prisoners
0: and that we're having psychotic breaks and had to be sent home. Approximately how many people are we talking that Were guards versus prisoners? Um, were they equal? I think it was 12 was it and 12, 12 or 12 and 24 20. and
1: 24.
0: Okay. Uh, yeah, no big deal. I, just, I didn't know if it was 100 it was 12 people. And 12
1: but I looked that up today. Okay, okay, 12 and 12. Yeah. And three alternates, it said. That was like nine and nine and then three alternates, just mm-hmm. in case. The 12 and 12. Yeah. So, I mean, one of the things, I mean, after. I think
3: 35 hours, one of the uh, prisoners started to kind of lose it and act crazy and start already. Yeah. Um, So these things started to happen quickly and the, the sadism on behalf of the guards escalated very quickly. And so that's generally kind of how the Stanford prison experiment is presented just on the facts of what happened. And then people try to interpret it a couple different ways and this is kind of the interpretation has kind of changed over the past thirty five years in part because well in part because Zimbardo himself has kind of changed what he uh, said the experiment <laughs> proved and uh, changed so that he comes off looking better basically <laughs> yeah or the so that he comes off as not saying that it proved what it arguably didn't prove. Okay. Um, so should we go into what this is supposed to have proved? Sure. So one of the okay. things that Zimbardo and that a lot of people took this experiment as proving is that, first of all, that uh, if you put somebody in a position of authority, they're going to abuse that. Power corrupts.
0: Yes, the power corrupts. Absolutely. Yes.
3: So is, uh, you know, the, the maxim of Lord Act and power corrupts. Yeah. Um, and And in particular, that it doesn't matter, that individual personalities don't matter when you put them in these kinds of uh,
0: positions. You know, I want to correct my own self on that because John Stanko corrected me on that. He said, power tends to corrupt and absolute power corrupts absolutely. So the first statement is power tends to corrupt, uh, but I've shorthanded it to power corrupts and absolute power corrupts
2: absolutely so well one thing that you know my my inclination uh i i don't know that this the stanford prison experiment proves this or not but there there is i think i i'm sympathetic to this idea because i tend to use in my own research and my own thinking when i i do economics uh what's called plots fundamental equation which is that you keep people the same you hold people constant and you vary the institutions then you're going to have variable outcomes and so we don't try to vary the individuals because it's very hard to see like in what ways are people different it's hard to quantify that or test that but it's very easy to quantify and test the changing institutions So so if we hold everyone the same and we change the institutions and we get different outcomes we can say those outcomes are caused or at least there's there's some reason to believe that changing the institutions with the same people can change the outcomes and so this is kind of how Uh, I'm interpreting this. What do you think of that, Justin?
3: I think that's a charitable interpretation of this (laughs) um, and one that's uh, probably a correct interpretation of this, right? But uh, one of the things that some people interpreted this as saying first, remember, is not that if you change institutions, you will change individual individual behavior, but that individual personalities don't matter. And the only thing that matters is the institution, right? And what you said is weaker than that, and I think correct, which is, That, you know, given a personality, that person will do different things in different institutions. Fair point. So if we accepted the stronger point, which is that, you know, only institutions matter, Mm -hmm. we would actually expect everybody to go crazy at 35 hours, right? You would expect every person who is in the same situation to have the same behavior. And we obviously don't, even in the Stanford Prison Experiment itself. So um, that can't be the correct interpretation that only institutions matter, right? Mm -hmm. But what you said is entirely correct. Institutions obviously do matter and changing an institution will have a different uh, effect,
2: uh, will elicit a different behavior from a given individual. I might push back on that a little bit. Um, uh, So uh, I think that 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 actually is correct. So first off, let, let me, you know, put my actual position down that maybe, you know, there is this thing called an individual personality that does matter. But I I actually think you could, you know, I I like to push institutions as far as they go. And so the first thing that I would do, you know, if we did the Stanford Prison Experiment and one person didn't break at 35 hours, the first thing I would do wouldn't say, well, that person must have a different personality. I would check and see what their religion is. I would check and see what their family life was like. I would check and see, um, you know, have they been in the military before something like that? You know, what other institutions in their life are they drawing upon that are variable before I... I I try to get into the personality just because I don't think I can, it's certainly not my wheelhouse to do that, but I'm not sure if anybody can even do it. And so um, maybe everyone would break at 35 hours if you just change enough of the institutions.
3: Let me push back on that. (laughs) It seems like what you're doing is institutionalizing personality and saying, uh, what we mean by personality we bring just, anything is a group to the table. of institutions that people have internalized. Right. Mm. Um, and if that's the case, then it seems like we have a semantic difference and maybe not a real disagreement.
2: I think the, the difference that I would say is the, the question is if you, if you define personality as a bunch of measurable things in a person's life, like family or something like that, then I think that we would be saying the same thing. But I also think that would be sort of a weird definition of personality, that your family is part of your personality seems odd to me. Well,
0: let me throw the Bible in for fun. We're all a unique unique snowflake at the beginning. So we're not a molded, a a raw piece of clay that somehow gets molded by institutions from a biblical standpoint. I think it's, uh, we're unique, created in the image of God, but we are unique. So we're not molded. We're not a homogeneous thing molded by institutions as we go on.
2: I would say we're unique, but we have the same nature and that's the fallen nature. And so uh, my, my perspective though, you know, different Christian denominations take this differently is the fall has made us basically the same in, in the way that we behave. That is where we tend towards bad rather than good. And we have to be saved from that. So I, 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 I understand what what you're saying. And actually, I do. At the end of the day, I agree there are personality differences. But I, I think our, our first glance back shouldn't be at the personality differences. But what observable things in the world are different rather than a person's brain or, or something that I don't have access to?
0: Well, I don't know if Thomas Sowell was overly influential on me, but I, I kind of see this constrained, unconstrained uh, version of people starting off, too. Like, uh, what are they on how institutions you know they're they're generally good and so if we have the right institutions is that kind of similar to this uh, or fits somewhere into this discussion anyway would maybe not directly with the Stanford experiment but uh well certainly if you think that
3: uh only institutions matter um which is one of you know the strong reading of the Stanford prison experiment that we got in the 70s, um, then you would think that, uh, well, as soon as we settle on the right institution, then problem solved.
0: Right. right? The uh, world is a better place. Well, this, uh, this looks like a good place for our first break here, our only break, I should say, our, our halftime. So um, when we come back, where are you going uh, to what, what, give us a teaser here, Justin, on what we're going to look at in the second half. Um, in the second half, I think we should, discuss
3: what this actually shows and maybe what Zimbardo's current position is and maybe what some of the criticisms of the methodology of the Stanford Prison Experiment. So
1: what lessons we can actually uh, derive from this. All right, we'll be back in just a bit. By 2030, the Gortney Institute will be known for its alumni, supporters, and participants who incorporate economic understanding with their faith in their careers, vocations, communities, and personal lives. The Institute will be a nationally recognized source for knowledge and contributions to students' experience, society's understanding of private and public solutions to poverty, and the overlap of markets, governance, and faith. Young audiences will look to the Institute for challenging and engaging education on faith and economics. The Wardney Institute at Ottawa University is the blessed
0: place in the Midwest for students interested in freedom and justice and its impact on human flourishing. Faith and economics in action. Last night we had 97 students at our Little Pink House movie event, uh, learning about eminent domain and how that it is possible that the government could take your home. Uh, we have an upcoming event on open immigration uh, policy or suggestions from uh, Dr. Brian Kaplan of George Mason University. And so we're exposing students to lots of different ideas involving freedom and its impact on human flourishing. If you know someone Who is looking for a college like that, contact Peter or Russ or Justin today.
1: Please visit our website at 123povertysucks.org. There you will find our events, blog, and our swag shop. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at 123povertysucks or on Facebook at Gortney Institute for updates on our activities and research. All right, so we're back to Stanford experiment and uh,
0: the professor who did this has changed his tune over time. Is that where we were gonna take some thoughts here to start off the second half, Justin?
3: Yeah, and one thing I, f- I forgot to mention is that after you know, the, the experiment was, uh, well, after some of the prisoners were released because they had you know, psychological problems, Uh, a rumor got started that uh, among the guards that these prisoners were going to come back and liberate their friends. Um, And uh, uh, they were worried about that. Right. And actually Zimbardo was worried about that too. So they moved the prison to a different, the basement of a different building. And then Zimbardo sat down, sat in the location of the old prison and he was there. Uh, His plan was to tell the returning liberators that, Oh no, the, the experiment's already done. We already sent everybody else home. Um, (laughs) So you can see with like that kind of anecdote that Zimbardo's kind of inserting himself into the uh, experiment a little bit. Um, And, you know, when they did give up the experiment um, after six days, uh, another thing to keep in mind is that the people who were assigned the role of guard, uh, they were very disappointed and upset that, the, uh, that it was over that it was over already. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Their taste of the good life with power
3: uh, was gone. Yeah. Um, so uh, one of the things that Zimbardo says now is this wasn't an experiment. It was an exhibition. <laughs> and what this exhibition shows is that institutions matter. Right. And so why did he say it's not an experiment? Well, there's no control group. Right. Um, Mm -hmm. So uh, it's, it's hard to even conceive what a control group would be for this kind of experiment. Um, The only pro I mean, the process of it that was random is the flipping the coin. Right. Um, So that's a bit of a randomization. Um, Another problem with this experiment is that it's like I just said, with Zimbardo you know, hiding out to try to fool the liberators who didn't come back, of course, uh, <laughs> that uh, Zimbardo himself is messing with the experiment in, in different places. Yeah. So not only is he doing that, he actually is kind of coaching the guards um, into how to be sadistic. <laughs> so there was also... A nudge,
0: it sounds like. Yeah,
3: he's kind of nudging them. And one of the criticisms was uh, that... A lot of the behavior that uh, the guards, a lot of the um, what's called sadistic behavior by the guards, making, you know, things like making them defecate into uh, a bucket um, and then not letting them uh, leave the cell with that and uh, some of the other uh, techniques seemed really similar to uh, techniques that San Quentin prison guards were using at the time. And the reason that seems like it's problematic is because Zimbardo, before the prison experiment, was talking with inmates in San Quentin and asking them to describe how bad their situation was. And so one of those inmates said, it's really weird that I told you all these complaints. And then you said that these students, uh, you know, in your paper, you say they did all these things on their own, which happened to be the very same things that I was complaining to you about before <laughs> the experiment began. Um, So that, again, seems like it's uh, a little bit of nudging on Zimbardo's part, right? Yeah. Yeah. But if we do take Zimbardo's current description, which is that it's an exhibition, and what it shows is that institutions matter, I think that's true, right? Institutions do matter. And the fact that it took a little bit of nudging from Zimbardo doesn't, you know, doesn't retract from the fact that uh, with just a little bit of nudging, uh, you know, these seemingly normal, uh, 19 to 20. Yeah. Otherwise
0: well-functioning, well-behaved in, in general. Yeah. Quote-unquote normal people.
3: Quote-unquote normal people will do really sadistic things to each other. <laughs> and uh, another criticism, criticism that has come up is that this study, uh, if we could call it an experiment, fails to replicate, which is that they've tried to do this a couple other times, oh. and they haven't been able to get the, uh,
0: the same results from it. Um, now... Did they always do it with men? I just it flashed in my mind like whether they tried females or I don't
3: know if they've ever tried to do it with females um I know that uh you know when I one of the things that struck me when it said that it fails to replicate is uh well um one of the things that this looks a lot like is uh hazing yeah right? um and you can say that it doesn't replicate in the clinical setting but uh I think there are these experiments running every fall and i think they replicate a lot
0: (laughs) that and what also came to mind was maybe this uh zimbardo helped spawn all these reality tv shows where you've got them locked in a house uh 12 people you know doing yeah they get to drink and they get to party but they're kind of you know locked together in in a variety and of course different reality shows have all kinds of things kind of similar They do. And one of the things that's really interesting about
3: those reality shows is they often have a psychologist on set
0: Mm. uh,
3: who is asking these people questions uh, (laughs) and kind of.
0: And the uh, producers are probably nudging them like, oh, wouldn't it be a good idea to be sadistic with uh... (laughs) that? Exactly. The whole point of a
3: reality show is to generate drama. Right. Psychologists know, uh, you know, how to elicit these kind of interpersonal conflicts. Yeah. um, Yeah. I should also just mention there's a great movie called The Stanford Prison Experiment, which does a pretty faithful job of mm. uh, uh, representing the Stanford Prison Experiment.
0: Mm. Okay, we, we can put that on uh, our show notes. Yeah, yeah. movie.
3: Um, so what to take from this is, I think, probably uh, that qualified version of the Acton quote, which is power tends to corrupt. And it's certainly, um, is uh something I mean, something that uh, power doesn 't prevent right and, mm-hmm. uh, right and uh, another thing to note is that once this kind of clash between powerful and not powerful people gets started it 's very very hard to stop
0: mm-hmm. um, you know once the prisoners start rebelling and uh, without a proper institution in place that the person who's getting abused or whatever can somehow overturn those in power. Right. Yeah. Um, which is why we try to set up institutions in the United States that allow for turnover of those in power, uh, limit terms, all that. Type of stuff. You have the guards asking
3: Zimbardo, what do we do when these prisoners fail to comply? We're supposed to affect compliance. Right. Mm-hmm. And Zimbardo goes, whatever you got to do, figure it out. <laughs> right.
0: Um, I've heard in the past that force works well. <laughs> yeah, yeah I, I, uh,
2: the, the whole thing is very interesting because we could imagine this was set up in so many different ways that I expect the outcome would be different. And so if the end of the experiment was the guards get paid a certain amount of money based on the prisoner's rating of their experience. Like to me, this all goes away very quickly, mm-hmm. right? I, or at mm-hmm. least I would think, you know, maybe there's still some sort of like game dynamic where the prisoner's for fun or like, you know, being non-compliant or something like that, but I doubt it. You know, it it only really becomes a prison by incentivizing uh, the the cruelty. I think because the prisoners know that there's so one of the reasons that I think that this is different than, in prison, than the prison environment is because there's a an explicit end date that's not 50 years in the future for most of for all of really these people um, relative to a normal prison where like you've got some long sentence. And so I think without inducing. That cruelty. There's no incentive for the guards or the prisoners to behave this way. That the only reason that this incentive comes in uh, to play is because you because they're being coached essentially. You said behave this way. What what's this way? Um, as if they're actually prisoners and guards. Uh, and so non-compliance on the part of the prisoners, sadism on the part of the guards. And so I think this happens in a real prison uh, because there's some sort of long extended stay and there there's actually criminal activity that goes on in prisons uh so david scarbeck has uh, is an economist who has a, a lot of interesting work on prisons and you know you have prison gangs and you have enforcement of uh you know contracts in prison and so a lot of times when people you know t- go, turn in their gang or like you know rat out to the feds there's gangs in prison who take care of those people uh and so you know, there's people who purposefully get sent to jail to enforce this. And so I understand why there's sort of like this dynamic in the prisons where the guards want to keep the prisoners at bay because the prisoners have some sort of incentive that doesn't align with the guard's incentive. But here, the only thing I can think of is that they were coached to be cruel. It just does not, besides that, it doesn't make sense.
0: Well, I, I, when you're speaking that way too, I I can't help but think of uh, the values of uh, freedom and, and I guess I wanted to bring big capitalism into it in some way, shape or form, but, how we can change behavior with potentially little incentives depending on the ratio of the cost and the benefits. So the way this experiment is designed, there was no benefit other than the value of potentially keeping somebody in place, the power part, right, was the benefit. And how that, I think you're absolutely right, could be changed just slightly if there was an incentive system of reviews by the prisoners on how well the guards were, and it probably wouldn't take that much, I think, to offset that, but how we can have some, a, a bad result come from just uh, eliminating that incentive system.
2: Yeah, it's kind of like uh, the comment that uh, Friedman and Alshin and others have made over time, Milton Friedman and Armin Alshin over time, that when you eliminate price discrimination, you make room for other forms of discrimination. And so by getting rid of the ability of customers to pay for their experience, in this case, you know, if you're thinking of the prisoners as customers, which Mm -hmm. you could, you know, you can conceive of that sort of thing. If you allow them to have exchange with the guards and pay the guards for their experience, I'd expect a different outcome. But when you remove that option, competition doesn't go away. What goes away is the price competition. And so it's replaced by um, you know, physical competition and other things like that.
1: Yeah.
3: One of the things that uh, we should touch on too, and I think Peter's bringing this up is the analogy between the prison experiment and regular prisons, because that was, uh, this experiment was also used uh, to motivate a kind of prison reform ah. uh, because uh, so at the time, um, you know, when you have these uh, riots in San Quentin, which were happening um, a lot of the uh, the reaction to it was, you know, why uh, are the prisoners acting, uh, acting this way? And the explanation is, well, they're criminals, right? Mm-hmm. And one of the things that this experiment purported to show was that uh, take criminality out of it, and flip the coin, uh, yeah. the power differential, and what's what was is, driving
0: uh, it, or at least the leading thing.
3: Can can, can at least cause the, the conflict in and of itself. Um, hmm. And, of course, uh there was some nudging right
0: so i, I and, s- and the nudging was probably there too, in a real prison setting that hey, if they're not complying you you need to make them comply if they're doing something wrong. So. If you're
3: the new guy, if you're the new guard, I'm sure your first day when you say the prisoners aren't complying, right. they don't say, well, maybe we could institute a system where, where the prisoners pay you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I am
2: suspicious, though, of actually sort of both these explanations. And so I've always found the word power to be kind of hard to penetrate intellectually, like what that means. I feel like it's often a filler word that's used. Like when you And, and we sort of can see it, but we can't really define it very well. So I'm suspicious of the power differential explanation. I'm also suspicious of the, they're criminals explanation. I think both of these are a little wanting to me. What, what I think happens, you know, in prisons is that it's profitable for prisoners to continue certain activities and it's part of the guard's job to don't, to not allow those activities. And so we know that, for example, drug trade can continue in prisons. Um, We know, for example, that, you know, after and i brought it this up before sometimes after a snitch goes to prison the gang inside of the prison takes care of them and they're you know they're paid for that in various ways by the gang on the outside and compensated when they get out and things like that uh and so i just think that there's like a, a misalignment of incentives it's not really that oh it's not just because they're criminals and it's not just because there's this power differential it's because there's uh two incentives the guards and the prisoners and sometimes these go out of alignment
3: i'm sure that's true uh Regarding power, we could define it as the ability to do what you want, um, which is itself a little bit vague, but I mean, you can also say something like Oliver uh, Wendell Holmes, I think, said about pornography, right, which is, I don't know how to define it, but I know it when I see it, right? <laughs> um, and uh, when the boot is on your neck, I think it's it's pretty easy to say, no, this is power, right, when uh, when you're being sprayed with the, yeah. the fire extinguisher. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Um,
0: yeah, and there's different types of power too. Then it is a complex word because I think you can, you can have some uh, economic power, let's say, by being able to go buy whatever you want because you've got a decent amount in your bank. And but that type of power, you're not harming. Although some people might argue you are that you're somehow oppressing the poor by buying stuff off the shelves. But that type of power is very individual. Like you have that power, but you're not overlording on over somebody else it's not negatively influencing somebody else yeah i think
2: i'd prefer to use the word property right uh to power here because i I, something interesting is when we talk we talk about power here we keep bringing in particular situations (laughs) you know um when this word power comes across i often get the feeling that we're like in like you know a japanese anime tv show and like that people have different power levels that they're walking around with that like we could measure and like you know you can see their power form around them, and that's that's the thing that's never really made sense to me. That you just walk around with this level of power. What makes sense to me is that in certain situations, because of the constraints that different people face, you know, whether it's physical constraints, whether it's wealth constraints, you have a certain property right, and so guards have the property right, uh, or you know, they're they're given. Not that it should be this way necessarily, but it, it is in fact this way that. Some guards have the right of violence over, you know, the the people in their prison. This is a right that they have. Uh, And the
0: prisoner lost that right due to whatever they previously did or were convicted of wrongfully or otherwise. But
2: yeah, that's right. But but actually, that doesn't have to remain that way. Right. In a prison riot, uh, you know, and I think of Orange is the New Black for this, uh, we could see that the guards actually lose that property right. and The prisoners take that property right away. And so, you know, the prisoner can uh, tie up the guard and then the power differential has changed. And so I don't see power as something that like exists in the person, but it's more of a, a property right that you have at a specific moment in time.
3: My worry is that uh, if I press you on property rights, we're going to have to define them in terms of power because a, a property right by itself uh, seems to be useless without the power to
2: uh, enforce it. I would define it as control a de facto control of something. And maybe you could say like, <laughs> oh, that's the same thing of power. But I think it's a little bit more precise. Again, it's not something that exists in the individual, but it's something that we can ex post after a person does something show that they've done it and so you know i pick up this pen i have de facto control of the pen we can say ex post that i own the pen or the coffee mug that i just almost knocked over um but it's not something like if i put this down you could maybe come over here and pick this up you know i don't really own the pen in some sort of like you know metaphysical sense it's just that ex post we can identify that the pen was mine
0: now i feel like the argument is just semantic is it (laughs) so i want to throw in uh the idea of zero sum power because I feel like that's where the that's where we get maybe some disagreements and maybe the nuance that I was trying to bring up that a, a zero sum power would be defining I'm over you, there's a, a fixed pie that we're somehow, whatever that interaction is. Whereas when I was describing purchasing economic power or something, then we have a win-win on each side of the transaction. Um and so each person has power, both the seller and the buyer have mutual power and both lead to gains um, in it. So um, I thought I'd throw the zero-sum part because I feel like that, that's where the tension is, is more with the zero-sum mentality, which we often g- have people getting confused in a market system that it is zero-sum when it's not. And probably 99%, uh, I wouldn't uh, want to actually add up the percentage because it might be 999 is all positive sum trade that goes on in globally. Whereas I bet a lot of people would think it's 50-50 at best (laughs) on positive sum versus zero sum.
3: Yeah, so typically political power is seen as zero sum. Mm -hmm. Mm Whereas economic power, if we define that in terms of purchasing power, is not zero sum.
2: Yeah, Um, And this gets back to Friedman and Aushin again, that price competition, or it doesn't always have to be price in dollars, but it could be price in goods. Price competition tends to have this ability to be positive sum. Both people in the exchange are better off. But really other forms of competition, you know, violence, political uh, competition is one form that, you know, is seen as negative sum. Uh, but even something as benign as like waiting for a resource, you know, that's not really positive sum either necessarily. I mean, uh, you get if I wait in line for something, I get that thing, um, but no one gets that time that I lost in line. That just goes away, and so the time I spend in line is equal to the value of the thing I get. And so it's kind of a zero sum still. And so it really is not less than or equal to the value. Yeah, less than or equal to And listeners, let me back up a
0: second. I, I should really define. When we say zero sum, it just means that what I win is what you lose. So if we... Flip a coin for a hundred dollars, and heads I win a hundred dollars. Tails you lose a hundred dollars. That's what zero sum. So my wins are equal to your losses, and so they sum to zero. Is what we mean by zero sum.
2: Yeah. So that's the beauty of price competition. Is it's really, I think, the only way to have the positive sum competition that we're talking about, where both people end better off.
0: Yeah. All right. Well, that looks like a pretty good place to wrap. Unless you got some closing comments. <laughs> no, uh, I don't stand think so. Okay. Uh, All right. Well, on behalf of the Gortney Institute, this has been a a nice production on Stanford Experiments. Uh, We brought in another university into this. so We'd like to thank you all for listening. And uh, if you feel so inclined to give us a five-star review, that helps us rise through the ranks to help other people find uh, our product on the World Wide Web. So other than that, be fruitful and multiply. Thanks.